As Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris flew over the targeted bridge on a bombing run in northern Vietnam in 1965, anti-aircraft fire blew out the single engine to his F-105 Thunder Chief. He ejected deep into enemy territory. Smitty was captured and transferred to, transferred to the Hala Prison, where other American POWs were held for years after the Vietnam War ended. The inmates facetiously dubbed the torture prison the Hanoi Hilton. There, in order to demoralize them, Americans were systematically tortured. They were subjected to long periods of solitary confinement, waterboarding, irons, and beatings. How did Smitty endure his 2,871 days of confinement? In his own words, he says, we knew deep down you had to believe in something bigger than yourself. And we believed that was God. And we prayed. Many years later, Smitty would reflect, I can recall most of the bad times, but I don't dwell on the bad times. The most important benefit for me was a renewed and strengthened faith in God. Smitty's suffering transformed his faith. The way he approached his persecution not only enabled him to survive, but also ultimately it caused him to come out the other side of that suffering stronger and with an even greater reliance on God. You see, my friends, that's what suffering should do. But it's only possible when we approach suffering correctly. When we began our series in the book of James, one of the very first things we learned in the very opening verses of this book is that trials, they test us. And I suggested to you that they test us and they tempt us, and they will either refine you or they will ruin you. We read in chapter 1, verse 2, that we are to count it all joy, all joy when we face trials of various kinds. And now, as we begin to draw this book to a conclusion, once again, James returns to this topic of those trials, and he encourages readers not just to embrace them, but to embrace them with patience. For much like Colonel Smitty's sufferings at the Hanoi Hilton, our trials should lead to a deepened faith and reliance in God. And when we suffer, no matter how trivial or how tremendous the heartache is that's involved, our trials ought to strengthen our faith and renew our faith. But we'll learn today that in order for that to happen, we must suffer patiently. Open your Bibles with me to the book of James, and we will read verses chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, James writes, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Be patient. That's how James begins this section. And it's rather surprising given the verses that have followed it. We've already ascertained that these Christians are those that have been dispersed by persecution. They live in a day when it is incre- has become increasingly unpopular to be a Christian. A day when your faith could cost you your business, your friends, your freedom or in some places, even your life. As such, these Christians were subject to the ridicule and the persecution of non-believers in the world around them. And so we, we might expect instead for James to say something like, be outraged at the persecution you endure, or still yet, And just give up fighting because all the power is in the hands of the rich and your situation is hopeless. Just know, Christians, we might expect James to say that one day this will pass. But both giving into the world and attacking the world are contradictory approaches to what James desires for his readers. Instead, to them and to us, James says, Be patient when you face trials. The word for be patient in Greek means here to bear up under some form of provocation and to do so without complaining. It means to remain calm and controlled in the face of harassment and even torment. It conjures up the image of being squeezed and enduring tremendous pressure, yet rather than losing your cool or giving into temptation, being patient means remaining steadfast and calm. The greatest example of patience in Scripture is, of course, none other than God himself. The psalmist wrote in chapter 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 9, said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. With God, then, as our perfect example for patience, we are admonished to be patient throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Proverbs 16.32 tells us that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And the Apostle Paul, of course, lists patience as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. As Christians, patience is to be a hallmark 
a defining attribute and a core characteristic of ours. Let's look at James' instructions in these verses, if you will, as we discover what I've called a, a portrait of Christian patience. If you're following along in your outlines, you will see that there are five pictures, five piece, pieces of this portrait that fit together like a puzzle and go and end up giving us the complete and entire picture of Christian patience. The first piece we see is that Christian patience has a specific object, a specific object, our sanctification. Understanding the Greek in which this letter was written is helpful because you learn that the verb be patient implies an object. That object becomes clear as James gives an analogy of a farmer we see there. A farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. The Greek reads he is patient over the fruit or about the fruit. Such a farmer wouldn't have owned his land. As we discussed last week, he would have been hired out and worked for someone else, and his would have been a small crop, precious to he and his family who depended on it for their livelihood and, yea, even their survival. And so, as that farmer pruned and weeded and watered what had been planted, he waited patiently for the fruit to grow. Throughout the letter of James, readers are reminded that there is something to be patient over, which is of far more value than riches. The goal James has made clear of our faith is to be made mature and complete, to be refined and shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. When we face trials, like a farmer who is patient over his crops, we are to be patient over our sanctification, over the fruit which our suffering will produce, over the maturity and completeness, to use James' words in chapter 1, verse 4, that these trials are meant to ultimately bring about in us the purpose, the goal, the object of our suffering is our sanctification. In her book, A Place of Healing, Johnny Erickson Tata a paraplegic whose spinal cord was severed in a diving accident at the age of 17, who now has a tremendous testimony, reflects on how we tend to worry that the cares, troubles, and afflictions of life will wear us down, dulling our joy, diluting our hope, and robbing us of the radiance we once experienced as believers. In fact, writes Johnny, it may be the very opposite. She then illustrates with this point. She writes, I'll never forget years ago when I had the chance to visit Notre Dame Cathedral while I was in Paris. There it was, almost 1,000 years old, standing there so huge and black. I'd never seen such a dirty cathedral. After hundreds of years of soot, dust, and smoke, Notre Dame was covered in layers of black grime. But then the grand old cathedral went through a year-long restoration. Scaffolding was erected, and the entire exterior was sandblasted. 
I was stunned, she said, when I saw a recent photograph of the cathedral. It was beautiful and so very different from the way I remembered it. The ancient stones glowed bright and golden. You could see details on carvings that hadn't been visible for decades. It was like a different cathedral. What a wonder a bit of sandblasting can accomplish. When I use the word sandblasting, she concludes, and when I think of how that process changed that cathedral in Paris, I can't help but consider the way God uses suffering to sandblast you and me. When pain and when problems press up against a holy God, suffering can't help but strip away years of dirt. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character. Church, what's like a sandblaster? God uses suffering in our lives to transform us. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. So, as we bear up under trials and tribulations, we should do so anticipating the growth of Christ-like character in our lives. For Christian patience has the object of sanctification. The second piece of that portrait is that Christian patience has a specific hope, a specific hope, the coming of the Lord. Be patient, James continues, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The word until has a a pregnant pause, an anticipation. The event to which is pointed is none other than the technical term that the church became familiar with, the parousia, the term that came to refer to Jesus' second coming, the time when he will descend from on high and every wrong that is suffered will be set right. It's this return of Christ that James wants his readers to be focused on during their suffering. It's this coming of the Lord that ought to to be the event that motivates us to persevere through suffering like the rain that motivates the farmer to continue his plowing, to continue his planting and weeding. The second coming of the Lord Jesus ought to encourage us to continue to keep our hand to the plow, to not grow weary of doing good, as Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, to be patient in hardship. And if you're struggling with how to endure hardship and trials, look up, James says, and set your eyes toward the day when Christ will come again. For Christians, patience has a specific hope, the coming of the Lord. Third, Christian patience has a specific stance, a specific stance, a deliberate behavior. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. After once again emphasizing the force of the imperative to be patient, he tells them to first establish their hearts. What we find as we unpack this patience, this verb and and this verse is that patience cannot be passive. It can't be passive. Patience isn't about sitting by calmly while events transpire. It's not about observing your trials and just allowing them to take place. No, patience is very much an active stance. The verb for establish means to set fast, 
to, to fix firmly. It's the same verb, interestingly, that's used in Luke 9, 51, when we're told that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Not just his face in a direction of heading, but his heart determined to go to Jerusalem and to fulfill his father's plans. And so we are to set fast our hearts. We are to fix them firmly toward his second coming. And the reason I would suggest that James tells his readers to establish their hearts is, is because he knows that it's out of the heart that actions flow. So in order to have the kind of congruity in our lives that James has been, has been insisting on throughout this entire letter, our hearts must be properly attuned to Jesus Christ, and they must be focused on his return. Only then can our patience through suffering, live itself out in ways that honor God. And then James addresses a particular behavior, a particular action that flows from that very heart that he's saying is to be established. It's a behavior that is devastating to our faith and contradicts the patience that we are to employ in suffering. It's the behavior of grumbling. I studied the word grumble this week and discovered that it, that it means to moan. It means to sigh when squeezed or pressed by circumstances. It's not always a negative thing, by the way. It's not always wrong. Sometimes it's the appropriate response. Jesus in Mark 7:34, as he was healing a deaf man, looked up to heaven and sighed. The same word that's used here. We're told in, by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, that we moan or groan in this tent that is our human physical body. But the way James uses the word puts a negative connotation to it. It means groaning, moaning, complaining, particularly about another person in the church, about a brother or a sister in Christ. Do so, James warns, and you'll be judged by the very judge who is Jesus Christ, who's at the door, he writes. Instead, we ought to be patient with each other, long-suffering and tolerant. Now, we could just pause and camp out right here on this topic of grumbling, couldn't we? we could, I could preach a whole sermon on it because, after all, we are a church of imperfect people. And how often... In the course of doing life together, do we get on one another's nerves? Be honest. If you've been here long enough, you've met some people that you don't really care for much. Now, I don't point any fingers. Perhaps they grate on you like fingernails on a chalkboard. And that will happen. But church, God's word is abundantly clear. We must not complain. We must not moan. We must not groan about each other because it devastates the body of Christ. And why does grumbling, why is it included in verses about suffering patiently? What does it have to do with this passage? I think it's because trials put our patience to the test and they offer plenty of opportunities for bickering and complaining and criticizing. We lose patience with others when we are under pressure, when marriages are suffering, when our dreams have been shattered, when we lose a job or our job isn't going well, 
or when we face health problems or financial difficulties, the temptation is to become short-tempered, to be on edge, to be critical with each other, to take out our stress on those around us, to allow them to feel the pain and the discomfort that we feel. And so do not grumble is very, very applicable to James' remarks about suffering. Christian patience involves deliberate behavior. It involves establishing or fixing our hearts on Christ and his return and not allowing the stressors we endure to overflow into our treatment of others. Fourth, Christian patience has a specific sequence. Suffering, perseverance, and blessing. Allow me a moment as I drink some of my tea with honey to give my voice a rest. A specific sequence, suffering, perseverance, and blessing. James draws out the sequence by offering us the examples in our text of the prophets and of Job. At first glance, this sequence seems logical, but let me take you through it, because if you're like me, there may be some surprise in it. The word that's used for suffering here is not the passive misery that comes upon us. It's not the diseases, it's not the grief or the heartache that we face. Rather, this is an active word. To suffer here means to deliberately endure hardship in a way. It's, it's an approach to those miseries rather than the miseries themselves. It's bearing up under those miseries. To help us understand this, James points to the prophets in Job. They deliberately endured rather than giving up hardship. So bearing up under the trial is the first step. It's the first step in this sequence. And the second is to persevere. The ESV uses the word for remain steadfast. The prophets and, the Job, and Job, they persevered. They remained steadfast during hardships. They wouldn't give up. They bore up under hardships, and they continued to stand strong. That's James' point. They are the first two in the sequence of Christian suffering, suffering and perseverance. But then there's the outcome of these trials, which I dare suggest we often forget or neglect to teach in the church. James says we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed. God's work in the life of persevering believers is to bless them. Have you ever thought about that? We are gun-shy about invoking and claiming the blessings of God, and for some good reasons. We are reluctant to talk about being blessed by God because we want to steer clear of the health and wealth teaching of too many churches today. Church, we need to reclaim a biblical understanding of being blessed. We need to understand what Scripture teaches about it, not what TV teachers and preachers proclaim falsely. Those who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ should be reminded of Matthew 5, 11 through 12, when Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great 
in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And all of us, all of us should be reminded that when we are walking through times of trials and tribulations, regardless of the source of those sufferings or the cause of our heartache, we should be reminded of the truth of Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God does not introduce suffering to harm us, rather to bless us. And he will ultimately accomplish his good purposes in and through us. James goes on to underscore this sequence by demonstrating the character of the God who carries us through it. He writes that this God is compassionate and merciful, and it's that knowledge that allows us to remain steadfast and to bear up under suffering, knowing God will ultimately bless us. Being patient in times of heartache and pain will look like the prophets who kept on speaking and like Job who kept on believing in suffering and perseverance with assurance of God's blessing. Finally, the last piece of this portrait of Christian suffering is this. Christian patience has a specific reliance, a specific reliance, God's magnificent grace. The last verse of our passage, verse 12, appears at first glance to be disconnected from the previous five verses. James writes, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not, you may not fall under condemnation. But I don't think this, these, this verse is disconnected at all. And let me show you why. I think there are two potential applications here. First, we should note that this is one of James' clearest references to the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He confronted their, their use of various formulas to create different levels of oaths, some of which were less binding than others. And Jesus commanded his followers to not use such oaths, but to let their words be full of integrity. You see, my friends, we shouldn't need to swear to God or swear on our mother's grave, or pinky promise in order to be believed. Our word ought to be truthful. James understands that his readers are facing and will face temptation to compromise their moral standards during their sufferings. And one of the many ways that they would be tempted would be by striking bargains with God or with others. Swearing to do one thing or another, especially if God would only deliver them. Have you ever done that? Made a promise to God that you would do something if only God would do this one thing for you? I don't know if you have ever heard the story, but Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, who was, was a young law student when he had a life-transforming experience. He was caught in a horrific thunderstorm, and Luther was thrown to the ground by the air pressure, a lightning bolt created when it struck very close to him. At that moment, he cried out to God for rescue, promising he would become a monk if God would only allow him to live. And the rest, as they say, is history. Have you ever bargained with God like that? I know I have. God, if you'll only save my child, I'll do this for you. 
God, if, if you only get me through this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. You fill in the blank. God, if, then I'll. Human beings have undoubtedly been doing this since the beginning. But when a Christian bargains with God like that, it depicts a lack of faith in God and instead attempts to manipulate the circumstances of our lives. It shows a heart that relies on ourselves, on our own actions, instead of on God's grace. Bargaining is a reliance on works, and James is insisting that we rely solely on grace. Interested in the difference between genuine and false religions, James is saying, saying, don't allow your suffering to be pre- to pressure you into unbelief. Don't try to impress each other or to manipulate God. If you are trusting in God's grace, you can be at peace with speaking honest words. Integrity should characterize Christians, and integrity will flow from a wholehearted reliance on God's grace. And the second potential application, I think, of this verse has to do with the pressure to cover our tracks and to lie when we face persecutions and trials. Christians who suffered for their faith may have been tempted to tell little white lies to keep themselves and their families safe, to hide their faith in Christ in the marketplace or in the social arena they found themselves in, to stretch the truth. To them, James says, your words must have integrity. Your yes must be yes, and your no must be no. You must depend on God's magnificent grace that is sufficient for us, as Paul wrote, to take care of you, not on your own actions or on your own clever words. Christian faith has a specific object, our sanctification, a specific hope, the coming of the Lord, a specific stance, deliberate behavior, a specific sequence, suffering, persecution, and blessing, and a specific reliance, the magnificent grace of God. Church, I know some of you are facing trials right now. One of the amazing things about spending the last six months with you is some of you have let me into your lives. You've told me some of the things that are going on. You've allowed me to pray with you and pray for you. And so I know some of the things that are happening here in your lives. There are in this place families in which relationships... (coughs) Excuse me. I'm almost there. Families in which relationships have been broken and pain has been caused. There are parents and adult children who aren't speaking to each other. There are hurtful words that have been exchanged. And the result is the lack of a relationship that you dearly miss. There are here marriages which may look fine on the outside to us this morning, but at home, they're falling apart. You're at each other every day, and you're questioning whether you can make it work. Perhaps you've already given it up. Perhaps you're just staying together for the kids. There are also those who are struggling financially, who don't have enough money at the end of the week. They don't know how they're going to pay their rent or where they're going to live or how they're going to put food on the table. 
There are still others who are suffering physically. You've been diagnosed with an ailment that is causing you to suffer. Or maybe you're living with a physical infirmity that introduces pain every single day. Whatever the trial, whatever the tribulation, know this. You must bear it with patience. Not passively. Rather engaging your suffering and ensuring that your walk with the Lord remains full of integrity and purity so that you don't obstruct the blessedness that God wants to bring through it. That blessing, the suffering working out for good, it may not even come in this life. But you and I can have confidence that it will be completed in glory. Christian, don't be a victim of your trials. Instead, bear up under them, knowing that God is in control and he will sustain you through them and you will be blessed because of them. As the song we're going to sing in just a moment beautifully reminds us, when we fear our faith will fail, when the tempter would prevail, he will hold us fast. Would you pray with me?